0: The following verses are translated from the Latin, from the Carmina Burana, a medieval collection of 254 poems. Burning inside, with violent anger, bitterly, I speak to my heart, created from matter, Of the ashes of the elements. I am like a leaf, played with, by the winds. In this interior integration for Catholics podcast, in the last few episodes, we've been grappling with the major topic of anger. In episode 103, your anger, your body and you, we reviewed the limitations of current Catholic resources on anger, and then we took a look at secular resources. We examined the role of the body in anger responses, and we discussed more holistic ways of working constructively with parts of you that experience anger, rather than just trying to dismiss it, suppress it, or distract from it. Then in episode 104, we connected with your angry parts in an experiential exercise. And from there, in episode 105, We went to how you hide from your anger at God. In that episode, we explored how anger at God is really, really common, why you need to work through your anger at God, the hidden reasons for your anger at God, why your anger at God is so frequently banished to your unconscious. And then we went through 16 defense mechanisms that drive your anger at God outside of your awareness Then we looked at how your anger at God is so overpowered by fear. And then we looked at the signs and symptoms of unacknowledged anger at God. Then in episode 106, God in the Hands of Angry Sinners, we had another experiential exercise, this time focusing on your part's anger toward God. Today's episode, number 107, is titled, How to Work Through Your Anger at God. And in this episode, we are getting to the best of the solutions out there that bridge the psychological and the spiritual when it comes to successfully resolving anger at God. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, also known as Dr. Peter, clinical psychologist, trauma therapist, podcaster, blogger, co-founder and president of Souls and Hearts at soulsandhearts.com. But most of all, I am a beloved little son of God, a passionate Catholic who wants to help you taste and see the goodness of the Lord, to experience the height and the depth and the breadth and the warmth and the light of the love of God, especially from God, your father, and the Blessed Virgin Mary, your mother, your spiritual parents, your primary parents. I am here to help you embrace your identity as a beloved little child of God and Mary. That's what this podcast is all about. So, Episode 105, How You Hide Your Anger at God. Let's just briefly review why you need to work through your anger at God. First, because God commands you to love Him with your whole heart. Not with parts of you all wound up and angry, but to love Him with your whole heart. Second, you've been shown how to bring your anger to the Lord in the scripture. Third, God can make great good come from your anger at Him. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord, even anger at God. Fourth, you are much more likely to sin if you banish your anger at God into your unconscious, where your intellect and your will can't reach it. Fifth, your anger at God is fuel for your agency, your capacity to do good. And sixth, trying to hide your anger at God just doesn't work anyway. In this episode, episode 107, I'm drawing again from psychologist Michelle Novotny and Randy Peterson's book, Angry with God, from Pignon Press in 2001. And in the final seven pages, pages 171 to 177, they have an excellent final chapter on how to deal with anger at God. It's among the best I've seen. And they lay out four tracks or four pathways for dealing with anger at God. So I'm going to flesh this section out in much greater depth than Novotny and Peterson have done in their pages. Because again, it was only seven pages. And I'm also going to bring in a Catholic approach, a Catholic take on this. Randy Peterson is a Methodist according to his bio on the web. And Michelle Novotny is likely a Christian, but she doesn't give any details about her denominational affiliations. I want this podcast episode to be really, really Catholic, to solidly base our work in the truths of the Catholic faith. So if anyone ever finds errors in what I'm offering, if there's anything that I'm offering that doesn't seem like it's consistent with our Catholic faith, I want to know about it. I'm really interested in... In making sure I'm very invested in that what I give you is truly Catholic. So if I'm making mistakes, I want to know about it. My cell phone number 317-567-9594. My email is crisis at com. The last thing I ever want to do is to lead anyone into error. At the same time, you know, we are on the leading edge here in a number of ways, bringing the best of psychology and human formation resources and harmonizing them with the truths of the Catholic faith. So There could be some things that are just in a gray zone. So if you do offer a correction to me, if you could offer me also some reference point, Denzinger, the catechism, Ludwig Ott's fundamentals of Catholic dogma, something like that to help me to know where to look into it further. So these four tracks that Novotny and Peterson offer us are first, the trust in God track. The second the cover-up track, the third they called the wrestle with God track, and the fourth, the long distance disconnect track. Let's repeat those. First of all, the trust in God track. Second, the cover-up track. The third, wrestle with God track, and the fourth is the long distance disconnect track. So let's just start with the trust in God track. Novotny and Peterson describe how, quote, some people seem to move through life's trials with remarkable faith. While not denying their tragedies or minimizing their struggles, they move forward holding on to God's promises, end quote. So, they offer this summary of how you progress through the trust in God track. First, to acknowledge the difficulties of the situation. Second, to trust God without blaming him. Third, to rely on God throughout the healing process. Fourth, self-awareness of feelings about others in situations. Fifth, to grieve. Sixth, to forgive others. And seventh, inner peace and growing in relationship with God. And they give this example. They say, quote, Some of our colleagues have recently met with people from Rwanda who have been putting together the pieces of their lives after a season of brutal killings in 1998. They expected to find examples of anger toward God for these horrific events, but instead they found only acceptance. These believers did not expect God to shield them from adversity, but rather to be with them in their adversity. They are not focused on this world but on the next. And I think the example of St. Josephine Bakita also demonstrates this trust in God track in the face of suffering. A little history. She was born about 1869 in the village of Alglasa in the Sudan. She was a member of the Daju people, kidnapped at age eight by slave traders, forced to walk barefoot 600 miles to a slave market. And over the next 12 years, she was bought and sold at least 12 times as a slave. Because of the abduction and because of the trauma of the abduction, she forgot her given name. She couldn't even remember her own name. Consider that such a loss of identity. And some of her slave masters were sadists. There was one who deliberately inflicted wounds on her Carving intricate patterns into her breasts, her belly, her right arm, rubbing the wounds with salt to make the scars permanent. What did she say about this? She says, I am definitely loved and whatever happens to me, I am awaited by this love, meaning the love of God. In this trust in God track, there's a relatively smooth progression. There don't seem to be many relational difficulties with God. There's a sense of redemption in the suffering. And there's a really collaborative and cooperative approach with God. So, if we break this track down, if we go piece by piece, the first one, acknowledging the difficulties of the situation, it means being real with one's own self, having awareness of one's own experience, including the experience of the suffering, including the experience of injustice. Knowing the shape and the form of the suffering, understanding the injustice that caused it, and not just that the suffering hurts, but why it hurts. There's a relatively limited use of defense mechanisms to avoid painful internal experiences. There's a feeling of the emotions, the sadness, the grief, the sorrow, the fear, the shock, the surprise, the anger, disgust, shame, guilt, all of it. You can feel all of that. And you can consider the implications of your current situation. There's no blinders on to minimize the recognition of the impact of the uh, adverse events, the the injustice, the suffering. There's no blinders on to minimize the recognition of the loss. And there's the sense of acceptance of the pain and suffering, a sense of redemption in the suffering that as St. Paul told us in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And St. Josephine Baquita said, quote, Mary protected me even before I knew her, end quote. This requires considerable interior integration, considerable harmony within. There can't be a lot of internal conflict in order to be able to hold this kind of position. So that's the first step, acknowledging the difficulties of the situation. Second is to trust God without blaming him. In this trust in God track, the God images are, are pretty positive. There's a felt sense in your bones that God is good. It's not just head knowledge, not just theological knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge, but in the bones, you know that God is good, both by faith and by experience. And it's, it's easier, relatively speaking, to work through anger at God with him directly. St. Josephine Bequita said, I have given everything to my master. He will take care of me. The best thing for us is not what we consider best, but what the Lord wants of us. You can see that filial trust, that filial trust. And that leads us to the third step, relying on God throughout the healing process, that filial trust, seeing yourself as a beloved little son or daughter of God. And that's what St. Josephine was saying, right? I have given everything to my master. He will take care of me. There is self-awareness of feelings toward others in situations. You can feel the sadness, the fear, the surprise, the anger, the disgust, the, the shame, the guilt, whatever, towards other people as well. No blinders on to minimize the impact of human relationships. What's happened to me? St. Josephine Biquita did not minimize what happened to her. She did not deny what happened to her. She didn't defend against that. She could grieve. And that's the fifth step in this track, is sharing your grief with God. To grieve in a relational context with God. To grieve with God, not in isolation. And then the sixth step, to forgive others with a real forgiveness acknowledging the wrong that was done, not papering over it, not minimizing it, offering forgiveness, even if the other person doesn't want it, but forgiveness that is true and authentic. Parents who divorce because they're not happy in the marriage, they don't recognize the impact on children. Children need to grieve their parents' divorces or a father who was absent on the road for work so much of the time, missing from family life because he really liked that traveling lifestyle, or a mother who suffered from untreated depression who was not emotionally available, all the wrongs we suffered when we were too little to defend ourselves. There's grief that comes from that. It can be really tough. It is so much easier to forgive and to let go of anger toward God and to others when you sense God's providence. And this is the example from St. Josephine Bikita. She said of her former owners I pity them no doubt they were unaware of the anguish they caused me they were the masters and I was the slave just as it is natural for us to do good so it is natural for them to behave as they did behave to me they did so out of habit not out of wickedness and if I were to meet the slave traders who kidnapped me and even those who tortured me I would kneel and kiss their hands for if that did not happen I would not be a Christian and religious today So she could forgive. She could forgive. And then the seventh step this peace and growing in relationship with God. The relationship with God is stronger because of the adversity, because of the suffering, because of the working through of the anger. We're able to embrace the crosses that God actually gave us. St. Josephine said, The Lord has loved me so much. We must love everyone, we must be compassionate. Be good. Love the Lord. Pray for those who do not know him. What a great grace it is to know God. So those are the seven steps in the trust in God track. First, to acknowledge the difficulties of the situation. Second, to trust God without blaming him. Third, to rely on God throughout the healing process. Fourth, the self-awareness of feelings about others in situations Fifth, to grieve appropriately. Sixth, to forgive others. And seventh, to have inner peace and to grow in relationship with God. That's the trust in God track. That's the first track. The second is the cover-up track. And Novotny and Peterson, they describe it like this. Quote, some people try to be trust in God people when they're not. They're convinced that it's the only legitimate track, so they pretend to trust God. When they are really nursing feelings of anger or disappointment, often they hide their true feelings even from themselves. They don't display their anger at God because they have not yet considered that option. They put a box around their thoughts and feelings so that they can go through the motions and survive. They don't ask themselves the tough questions because they're afraid of discovering the answers. On the surface, these folks can often look like the trusting God folks. They seem to be moving through the same process, but they are missing the depth of the feelings. They have not yet processed their thoughts. Like an ostrich putting its head in the sand to avoid seeing danger, they often shield themselves from what's really going on within them. Okay. So, let's break this down a little bit. These folks that are in the second track, the cover-up track, they are wanting to be like those in the trust in God track. They're pretending to trust God, but their trust in God is superficial. They find it unthinkable to express anger toward God that does not seem acceptable. It's not something that entered in to their consciousness as a possibility. They wall off their thoughts and feelings to be able to make it through the day. They can look good on the outside, but they are disconnected from themselves on the inside. And they shield themselves from the realness and the rawness that they feel toward God within their heart of hearts. Novotny and Peterson say, quote, This is a dangerous track. In their effort to be like the trust in God people, the sufferers are denying their suffering. As a result, they never heal properly. All sorts of inner wounds can fester. These people often hit a wall in their relationship with God, unable to grow any deeper, and not knowing why. If they dig deeper, they'll find the pain they've buried. The road to healing for these folks goes backward. They have to uncover the feelings they've been denying. For a time, it might seem like they're not very good anymore. They won't look anything like the trusting God people they admire. Okay, so let's break this down. This is a dangerous track, this cover-up track, because of the festering wounds, never healing. These folks don't go deep within themselves. They don't have that interior integration. They are disconnected. They need to go backward to connect to the feelings that they've been suppressing or repressing or otherwise keeping out of their conscious awareness with defense mechanisms. There is also a need to give up their curated image of themselves their impressions of themselves as people who trust in God because they don't. It's not real, right? That can be very difficult though, to give up that image or to give up that presentation. So let's just go through the steps in the cover-up track. The first one is to block, minimize, or deny thoughts and feelings. Second one, superficial reliance on God. Third one, Quick forgiveness of others. Fourth one, shallow or limited relationship with God. Let's break these down. The first one, to block, minimize, or deny thoughts and feelings. There is a myth that undergirds this particular track, the cover-up track. And that myth is, if I don't feel anger at God, then I'm not angry at God. Nope, that's not true. The anger can be in the unconscious. It's totally possible to be raging at God and not know it. We call it dissociated anger. William Gaultier, in his 1989 article, A Biblical Perspective on the Therapeutic Treatment of Client Anger at God, which is published in the Journal of Psychology and Christianity, says, quote, Consequently, they banish their anger into their subconscious and try to hide their terrible secret from themselves, others, and even God. Once their anger at God is hidden, it festers into a sort of resentment and bitterness which infects their emotional and spiritual lives, their emotions get clogged up inside, and the relationship with God becomes sterile and void of intimacy. Often, to just mention to such people that they may be angry at God causes them to rush to God's defense and piously proclaim his innocence. In episode 105 of this podcast, How You Hide Your Anger From God, I gave a list of 16 defense mechanisms that Catholics use to cover up their anger toward God. We explored each of them in detail, but for now, I'm just going to repeat the list. Those 16 different defense mechanisms are repression, suppression, minimization, passive-aggressive behavior, reaction formation, compartmentalization and isolation of affect, displacement, turning against the self, externalization, projection, avoidance, distraction, hypomania, somatization, obsessions, and scrupulosity. And in my weekly email reflections, I've also been writing about a defensive process called spiritual bypassing. Catholics on the cover-up track often use spiritual bypassing to disconnect from their anger at God. So check those out. The February 22nd, 2023 weekly reflection was called Spiritual Bypassing Catholic Style. And the March 1st, 2023 Weekly reflection is titled The Wise of Catholic Spiritual Bypassing. We're going to be continuing this week with another weekly reflection on the costs of spiritual bypassing. You can check out the archives of those weekly reflections at soulsandhearts.com/blog. But the best thing is to sign up to receive them in your email inbox every Wednesday. Go to soulsandhearts.com and click on the blue box that says, get Dr. Peter's weekly reflections in your email inbox each Wednesday so that you can just have those. That's blocking, minimizing, and denying thoughts and feelings. That's the first step in the cover-up track. Second step is superficial reliance on God. What's going on here is that there's an attempt to not need God. Why? Why? Because there's a lack of trust. That's why. There's a lack of a sense of felt safety and protection, a lack of a desire to be seen, heard, known, and understood by God because it doesn't feel safe. That's why. It feels safer to rely on oneself. And there's this quote from Dr. Jeff Miras in his 2006 article called Spiritual Self-Reliance, The Enemy Within at CatholicCulture.com where he says, quote, One cannot be fully Catholic and habitually self-reliant in spiritual matters at the same time. End quote. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. One cannot be both fully Catholic and habitually self-reliant in spiritual matters at the same time. Folks in this cover-up track are licking their own wounds. They don't even realize it. And Pope Francis, in his Angelus Address from October 3rd, 2021, said, quote, This is how we become great, not in the illusory pretense of our self-sufficiency. This does not make anyone great, but in the strength of placing all our hope in the Father, just as the little ones do. And in episode 30 of this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, that episode was titled, How Small and Childlike Are We Supposed to Be?, I discuss spiritual childhood and the psychological factors that get in the way of us being confident in God and open to him in our lives. And I focus on the first two years of life. Then in episode 35, that one's titled, Being Both Big and Small, I explore how to be both adult and childlike in the spiritual and natural realms through the metaphor of healthy soil. I provide examples to illustrate how to be both big and small in the metaphor of preparing our soil and sowing good seed. All right, so that's, that's the second of the four steps. The first one, to block, minimize, or deny thoughts and feelings. The second one, superficial reliance on God in this cover-up track. And the third one, Novotny and Peterson say, is quick forgiveness of others quick forgiveness of others. Janice Abrams Spring wrote a book called How Can I Forgive You? She was a therapist and she was really interested in this concept of forgiveness. And she said, quote, cheap forgiveness is a quick and easy pardon with no processing of emotion and no coming to terms with the injury. It's a compulsive, unconditional, unilateral attempt at peacemaking for which you ask nothing in return, end quote. And why do we engage in cheap forgiveness? Why would we do that? Well, we do that to smooth things over, to paper over conflicts, to avoid friction and strife, to avoid disagreements and quarrels. But there's effects from cheap forgiveness. And Janice Abram Spring says, quote, cheap forgiveness is dysfunctional because it creates an illusion of closeness when nothing has been faced or resolved and the offender has done nothing to earn it silencing your anguish and indignation, you fail to acknowledge or appreciate the harm that was done to you, end quote. Right. There's an illusion of closeness, but that illusion is fake. It's not real. Cheap forgiveness doesn't really bring people together. It doesn't reconcile people. It just papers over the simmering effects of the wrongdoing. And Paul Sigafus, the director of the Colorado Counseling Center, in his article "Why Cheap Forgiveness Doesn't Work," he says, quote, "Whatever the cause is, cheap forgiveness doesn't lead to increased safety, dignity, growth, or healing. It comes at a tremendous cost. In a way, it's like sweeping broken glass under the rug—one that everyone still has to walk on. The cuts keep happening. The hurt continues. No one grows. No one heals." So cheap forgiveness is a poor counterfeit of real mercy. It isn't merciful to the offending party because they aren't really allowed the dignity of being responsible for their own hurtful behavior. They aren't allowed the full possibility of becoming a kinder, more thoughtful, more responsible human being. Cheap forgiveness also prevents real mercy toward the one who's been hurt. Without responsibility and a real reckoning with what has happened, it's hard to understand how you got there and what needs to change in order for the healing to begin. Although cheap forgiveness can seem like an attractive option in the short run, it carries a heavy long-term cost. It typically leads to some combination of ongoing hurt, despair, resentment, and loss of self-respect and dignity. On October 13th, 2002, this is more than 20 years ago, the National Catholic Register published an article titled Cheap Forgiveness by Father Val Peter, former executive director of Father Flanagan's Girls and Boys Town near Omaha, Nebraska. Now, Boys Town was originally founded as an orphanage and still works with at-risk youth. Father Peter has this great quote. He says, If one of my boys steals $50 from me and then comes and says, Father Peter, I'm very sorry for what I did. Will you please forgive me? Don't be surprised if my response is, where's my $50? He's not interested in cheap forgiveness. And in that article, he tells the story of a 13-year-old girl who was badly sexually abused by her father. And as a result of that sexual abuse, that incestuous abuse, that girl started using drugs, became sexually active, and began a pattern of self-mutilation. At the time, she was on the road to recovery and had a good relationship with her mother. Her mother divorced her father. She hadn't heard from her father for several years. But now, her father calls up boy, girls in Boystown and talks with Father Peter. He wants to apologize to his daughter for the wrongdoing, for the sexual abuse, and to ask for her forgiveness. Father Peter asks what he wants to tell his daughter in the apology. And the father responds, quote, I'll tell her I'm sorry, really, very, very sorry. And I've gotten help and I'm getting better. And would she please forgive me? End quote. And then the father puts in there that his therapist told them that it was time for him to apologize. And Father Peter, he comes back. He says, are you ready to make up for the abuse that you've perpetrated on your daughter? And the man, he says, there's nothing I can do about that. I can't do anything about the past. The past is the past kind of a thing. And then Father Peter then says, quote, yes, there is. You took her childhood. You took her innocence. You took her happiness. You made her believe it was her fault. And you can take much of that away by showing her that it was not her fault, that you groomed her for months on end and that you convinced her that she liked it. You need to tell her it was not her fault in any manner, shape, or form. And then, Father Peter goes on to say that this man needs to realize that all these years of her holding herself guilty were not only her burden, but his burden. And he says that the man acted surprised and said, quote, My therapist told me nothing of this. I only want to get on with my therapy by asking her to forgive me so that I can feel better. End quote. This is not real forgiveness, people. This is not real forgiveness. This is an example of cheap forgiveness. He's seeking cheap forgiveness. So Father Peter told him, quote, absolutely not. First, you abuse your child, you hurt her in the most horrible way possible, and you impose on her years of guilt and pain and therapy, and you did it for your own pleasure and selfishness. And now you come to try to impose on her a second burden, namely her need to forgive for your own self-centered purposes, and you won't lift a finger to lighten her burden. Father Peter said, no deal. The little girl deserves better than that. All right. So you can see he's resisting that cheap forgiveness. When we are in the cover-up track, we are into cheap forgiveness. Forgiving others, papering it over, trying to make nice. And people will also paper over things with God. And that leads us to the fourth point, which is the shallow and limited relationship with God. So, that's the fourth one. So, the first step in the cover-up track is to block, minimize, or deny thoughts and feelings. Second is the superficial reliance on God. Third one is the quick forgiveness of others. And the fourth is the shallow and limited relationship with God. So, let's discuss that shallow and limited relationship with God. This is where you keep God at arm's length, or maybe a little further, right? The lack of trust in God keeping him at arm's length, and you probably keep the form, right? You sit through Sunday Mass, you pray the vocal prayers like the rosary, but you're not engaging relationally. Selina Frederick said, quote, Honesty without love is cold, and love without honesty is shallow. Speak the truth with love. And A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Dangers of a Shallow Faith, Wrote, spiritual sophistication lacks freshness and warmth. God is far away, and there is little communion and little joy in the Lord. To have a cold heart with little pity, little fire, little love, and little worship is spiritual lethargy. What is the antidote? Well, the antidote to this is the virtue of faith. The virtue of faith. And I'm going to take you to Matthew 17, verses 14 to 21 which read as follows. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he suffers terribly for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, "O faithless and perverse generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from hence to yonder place, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. The virtue of faith. When there's a shallow and limited relationship with God, there's always a deficit of faith. We need that faith. In Luke 18, 8, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's a much rarer commodity than people really think. Why? Because there's so much shallowness, so much superficiality in relationship with God. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 153 says, When St. Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus declared to him that this revelation did not come from flesh and blood, but from my Father who is in heaven. Faith is a gift of God, a supernatural virtue infused by him. Before this faith can be exercised, Man must have the grace of God to move in a system. He must have the interior helps of the Holy Spirit who moves the heart and converts it to God, who opens the eyes of the mind and makes it easy for all to accept and believe the truth. Right. So, faith is a theological virtue. And the Catechism in paragraph 1813 says, The theological virtues are the foundation of Christian moral activity They animate it and give it its special character. They inform and give life to all the moral virtues. They are infused by God into the souls of the faithful to make them capable of acting as his children and of meriting eternal life. They are the pledge of the presence and action of the Holy Spirit in the faculties of the human being. There are three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Okay, let's talk about what an infused virtue is. Father John Harden, Catholic Dictionary, says, An infused virtue is a good habit of the mind or the will given to the soul by God and not acquired by the action of a human being. The theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity are always infused. The moral virtues are both acquired and infused. So, what we need in the shallow and limited relationship with God is the virtue of faith, which means we have to ask for it. It's a gift. We have to ask for it. We can't generate it on our own. We can't attempt to to rely on ourselves to make it happen. It's a gift. It's a gift freely given by God, but we need to ask for it. So that's it for the shallow and limited relationship with God step. That's the fourth step. So, just a quick review of the cover up track. Step one, to block, minimize, or deny thoughts and feelings. Number two, superficial reliance on God. Number three, quick forgiveness of others. Number four, shallow and limited relationship with God. And so, we have two tracks that we've covered so far. The first one is the trust in God track, the second one is the cover up track. And that leaves us with the wrestle with God track. And then also the long distance disconnect track. So we're going to do the wrestle with God track next. The description of the wrestle with God track in Novotny and Peterson is this. Some find their faith tested when adversity hits. There's nothing wrong with this. Have the courage to be honest with yourself, with both yourself and God. Denying your feelings won't help you. Won't get you back on track with God, but moving through your feelings will. Dig up those buried grudges and spread them out in the sunshine of God's gaze. Sort through the events that have hurt you. Ask the tough questions as you present your case against God. Don't edit yourself. You can figure out the validity of your concerns later. But right now, just bring your honest feelings and thoughts to the table. Also, bring an open heart and an open mind. If you feel anger, let it out. Express it in a safe environment. Use your anger for healing. But if you're going to duke it out with God, just make sure you're fighting fairly. Throw a few jabs, he can take it. But then don't rush back to your corner. Let God answer back. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. The first is when they say you have courage to be honest with both yourself and God. This is going to require courage. This is going to require fortitude. And these are definitions of those virtues from Father John Harden's Catholic Dictionary. Courage is the virtue of bravery in facing difficulties, especially in overcoming the fear of consequences in doing good. As moral courage, it enables a person to pursue a course deemed right, through which one may incur contempt, disapproval, or opprobrium, as physical courage, it is simply bodily or emotional strength to withstand opposition. It differs from fortitude in being more aggressive in the undertaking, whereas fortitude is more patient in undergoing what is virtuous but hard. But then there's the virtue of supernatural courage, which is the moral virtue of fortitude divinely infused into the soul along with sanctifying grace. As a supernatural virtue, it is needed to practice what Christ commanded or recommended his followers to do. So courage can be infused. Supernatural courage is infused. And the gift of fortitude is one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. It gives a person a special strength of will. This gift confers an extraordinary readiness to undergo trials for the love of God or in fulfillment of the divine will. Unusual courage to bear difficulties even for many years. Firmness in carrying out arduous tasks to their completion. Perseverance and a lifetime fidelity to one's vocation in spite of heavy trials or disappointments sent by God, and gladness in being privileged to suffer persecution or humiliation in union with Christ and for the sake of his name. Right, this is all courage. We're also told to bring our experiences to God, to bring our anger to God. Novotny and Peterson say, Ask the tough questions, don't censor yourself. And Monsignor Charles Pope, in his article, How Long, O Lord? A Meditation on Anger and Disappointment, which was published on March 19th, 2019, he said, quote, God himself seems to say over and over again in the scriptures that he wants us to talk to him about it, to tell him that we're angry and to pray out of this reality in our life. God actually models this in the scriptures. The book of Psalms is the great prayer book that God gave to Israel And the Psalms is enshrined every sort of human experience and emotion. Joy, exaltation, hope, gratitude, dejection, hatred, despair, and anger. Yes, even anger at God. And Monsignor Pope goes on to say, First of all, God already knows that we are angry. He doesn't want our prayer to be suppressed, pretentious, or phony. If anger is the elephant in the living room, let's admit it rather than pretend it's not there. Second, expressing our emotions aloud often helps to vent them or at least reduce their power over us. Suppressed feelings often become depression if they are not given respect and a voice. So, this encouragement to bring it to our Lord. And Novotny and Peterson say, let your feelings of anger bring you back to God rather than driving you away. Moving through the anger, frustration, or disappointment is the way to get back on the track of faith. You will be a stronger person for the process. Then they provide the seven steps in the wrestle with God track. Remember, the wrestle with God track is the third of the fourth tracks that they describe. And the wrestle with God track has these seven steps. First, to acknowledge the difficulties of the situation. Second, second, to allow the feeling that God failed me and allow oneself to blame God. Third is to feel anger, disappointment, and frustration with God. Fourth is to identify the areas in which you feel God has failed you. Fifth is the internal commitment to the relationship with God and to risk bringing those feelings to God. Sixth, to be open to new understandings, to trust God for what you are not able to understand. And seventh, to be able to, quote, forgive, end quote, God and let go of the anger. So let's go through these seven stages, these seven steps to acknowledge the difficulties of the situation. And here, Father Mike Schmitz, in his article, Angry with God, Tell Him How You Feel, says, quote, the authors of sacred scripture did not sugarcoat their pain or frustration. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget your people forever? Rather, they trusted God enough to tell him the truth. You can begin by bringing God into your situation as it is. To acknowledge the difficulties of the situation, no blinders on, no sugarcoating, but to say it like it is, or say it like it feels maybe a better way to say that. So that's the first step, to acknowledge the difficulties of the situation. Second step, to engage with the feeling that God failed me and to, quote, blame, end quote, God. Monsignor Charles Pope, in his article, he says, thus, God tells us that even if we are angry with him, we should speak to him about it. And he does not ask us to mince words, to minimize our emotions, or even to speak politely. So that's the second. The third is to feel the anger, disappointment, and frustration with God. To feel it. You know, Novotny and Peterson say to dig down into it. Now, this is where we got to be a little careful. This is where we got to be a little careful. Because we don't want to be overwhelmed by the intensity of anger toward God. When Novotny and Peterson were writing this in 2001, they were still very much in the very early stages of understanding trauma like we do now, and especially the aspects of emotional regulation. And often it's very casually said by people, you've got to feel the anger at God. You've got to feel the disappointment and the disgust and the frustration, whatever's down there. And I'm like, I don't know that to be true. And I'm like, we got to be careful about that. Why? Because it might not be safe. Monsignor Charles Pope, in his article, says, Sometimes our anger at God is obvious to us, and other times it can manifest itself more subtly in depression, spiritual sadness, avoidance of God and spiritual things, loss of hope, or a reduction in asking things of God in prayer. Sometimes, too, we like to minimize our anger by saying that we are merely disappointed or frustrated. But the reality is that at times we are angry with God, sometimes very angry. And often that anger is unconscious. And there's a reason why anger gets hidden in the unconscious. Now, I experienced a real spiritual trauma when I was in my early 20s, a severe trauma. It rocked me to my core. And I had rage toward God over what happened, right? It did not feel safe to experience the intensity of my rage toward God because there was the potential that I could be swept away by the passion of anger, be subject to my own impulses. It's very easy to be overwhelmed when you have that kind of anger at God. It's very easy to get to a point where you're not able to function reasonably, where your capacity to maintain connection with your faculties of the intellect and the will, where that can get really compromised really quick. So there's some protection with that intensity of anger being in the unconscious, and we want to work through that gradually with a sense of timing and of patience. And one of the things I did not see as I was researching this topic of anger at God is a a sense that we could work with this in a gradual and moderated way, that there was a process to this. It's more like, yeah, just let it all hang out. Just bring it all to God. And I have to disagree with that. There could be times, especially when there's been spiritual abuse, spiritual neglect, spiritual traumas of various kinds that have really warped God images, right? To just sort of bring it all up at once may not be the best thing at all. In fact, sometimes it's really contraindicated. When most clients come to therapy, they come for one main reason, one overarching reason. They're emotionally dysregulated. They are poorly regulated emotionally. They don't have control over their emotions. That's what drives most people to come to individual psychotherapy. They're overwhelmed with emotion or they're shut down. They're numbing out. They can't control their thoughts. They've got these distracted, intrusive thoughts, ruminations, racing thoughts. They've got impulses rising up, intrusive memories that keep just invading their consciousness. They're having trouble keeping it together. They're really emotionally reactive. They've got mood swings and anger management issues, sometimes intense depression. They can feel unreal, depersonalized. They have identity issues. They don't know who they are. They feel fragile, vulnerable, about to fall apart. In a word, people come to therapy because they can't manage their lives very well anymore. And they fear that they're going to lose control. And that's what makes them feel unsafe and scared. And that's what it was like for me when I was in my early 20s and I left a Catholic group that was spiritually abusive, that was psychologically abusive. That's what it was like for me. And there are a number of spiritual writers that don't seem to appreciate that, that can say very cavalierly or very casually or very generally, yes, just get in touch with your anger. Just get in touch with your anger, including Novotny and Peterson, including many of the people that that I've quoted in this podcast episode. And there's a question of prudential judgment here. There's a question of how much can the person bear? Which leads me to this next point about feeling anger, disappointment, and frustration with God. In episode 89 of this podcast, which was titled, Your Trauma, Your Body, Protection Versus Connection, we got into this whole topic of co-regulation. Co-regulation. And Deb Dana, trauma therapist, says that, quote, when we feel alone in the world, we suffer. When that feeling is chronic, medical and mental health risks multiply. She says, our autonomic nervous system longs for connection with another system and sends signals out into the world searching for signals in return. Stephen Porges goes further when he says, survival is dependent on opportunities to successfully co-regulate. Co-regulation is essential for our well-being. In short, we need each other. People need people. Connection is a wired-in biological necessity. Janina Fisher in 2014 said, Without the experience of an organizing other, the nervous system is stunted. Trauma survivors experience a lot of dysregulation. Unpredictable shifts inside, rapid mood swings thoughts that seem out of control, body sensations that are so intense, impulses that can seem really strange. We covered all of those symptoms and trauma in episode 88, Trauma, Defining and Understanding the Experience. You can check that out. But the central idea here is that the ability to regulate oneself is built on the ongoing experiences of co-regulation with a secure other person with somebody else that we trust. Through co-regulation, we connect with others and experience a shared sense of safety, safety together, safety in relationship. And so those reliable people in our lives, those that help us to engage in what Deb Dana calls the rhythm of reciprocity, they can help us experience safety in connection a safe person in a safe place. Sue Johnson says that, quote, emotional connection is crucial to healing. In fact, trauma experts overwhelmingly agree that the best predictor of the impact of any trauma is not the severity of the event, but whether we can seek and take comfort from others, end quote. And this is true in the spiritual realm as well. I would say especially true. So, when we're struggling with this intense anger at God, God doesn't seem like the safe attachment figure. Sometimes we need another person. Tanya Marlowe, in her article, Angry With God, Six Top Tips From Readers, printed this comment from Steph. And Steph said, I certainly believe it's possible to be sinfully angry at God, but I also believe it's possible to be angry at God and very much like a toddler, highly in need of a stronger, steadier hand to guide us through the working out of our emotions, all the while embracing us and reassuring us that there is someone greater in control. We need other people. And so one thing that I really want to bring out that I can't see being said in a lot of other places is sometimes we need somebody else to help us. Sometimes we need somebody else, a therapist, a coach, a spiritual director, a friend, somebody to be there with us. That is the third step, feeling anger, disappointment, and frustration with God. So, the first step in this Russell with God track is to acknowledge the difficulties of the situation. Second, is to discover where it feels like God failed you and where you blame God. The third, to feel anger, disappointment, and frustration with God, which brings us to the fourth step, which is to identify areas in which you feel God has failed you. This is the specific areas where it seems like God let you down. And Monsignor Charles Pope, in his article, How Long, O Lord, a Meditation on Anger and Disappointment, says, quote, one of the most common expressions of anger toward God in the scriptures appear in what might be called the usquequo verses. The Latin word usquequo is most literally translated, how long? And thus, in the Psalms and in other verses of scripture will often come the question, how long, O Lord? So those psalms, but my favorite psalm for expressing anger at God is Psalm 44, by far. Far and away, my favorite psalm as far as expressing anger at God, Psalm 44. And I'm going to read verses 9 to 26. This psalm was written by the sons of Korah, and it's one of the lamentations of the Jewish people. Yet thou hast cast us off and abased us, and hast not gone out with our armies, Thou hast made us turn back from the foe, and our enemies have gotten spoil. Thou hast made us like sheep for slaughter, and hast scattered us among the nations. Thou hast sold thy people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Thou hast made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those about us. Thou hast made us a byword among the nations." a laughingstock among the peoples all day long. My disgrace is before me and my shame and shame has covered my face at the words of the taunters and revilers at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten thee or been false to thy covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from thy way that thou shouldst have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread forth our hands to a strange God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Nay, for thy sake we are slain all the day long, and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Rouse thyself! Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Awake! Do not cast us off forever! Why dost thou hide thy face? Why dost thou forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust." Our body cleaves to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Deliver us for the sake of thy steadfast love. This psalm, Psalm 44, does not mince words. This psalm is accusing God of being negligent. This psalm is trying to get God to wake up, right? As though God were sleeping, This psalm is very, very direct about the grievances of the sons of Korah against God. And this is the word of God. This is scripture. We can pray these psalms. We can bring it out. In Tanya Marlowe's article, Diana writes, when my rant at God is over, I always feel calmer. And then I can say sorry for my anger. I can praise him for listening and love him for his faithfulness. All in all, it's an honest relationship, end quote. And Janice says, if my husband does something to make me angry, whether it's legitimate anger or not, I think it's good to tell him about it. Even if I tell him just to explain, tell him I'm sorry and that I'm working to fix it, how is that different from God? I should be able to tell God, even if I'm telling with an apology and asking for help with it. So this this idea of being little, this idea of, of being forthright, of sharing what we're feeling, but in, a, in an appropriate way. That's all wrapped up in this step of identifying areas in which you feel God has failed you. The key word here is feel. It feels like a failure. We're not saying that it actually is. We're saying it feels like that to us. So, then the next step is the internal commitment to the relationship, Risking bringing your feelings to God. And Father William Nichols, in his YouTube video, Being Angry at God, Is It a Sin?, says that in imitation of the prophets, in imitation of the Psalms, pure unadultery honesty in our prayer, that's necessary. God wants to hear it. After letting out the anguish we feel, we can see more clearly to understand God's plan. So bring the truth in the honesty. And then the next step, being open to new understandings, to trust God for what you are not able to understand. It's not just about bringing it to God and then backing away, right? What Novotny and Peterson said, you know, throw a few jabs. He can take it, but then don't rush back to your corner. Let God answer back. See if you can listen to what God tells us. And there's an article by a blogger who goes by the name of Cheryl, August 28th, 2018, called Job's Surprising Lessons on How to Be Angry at God. And she writes, God allows Job to be honest. For all his rants and raves, Job is said to have spoken rightly about God at the end of the book. The pious musings of his friends, on the other hand, are condemned. Job seeks God. Despite his anger, Job does something that I struggle with. He rushes to God in his anger not away. Job wanted to meet with God more than he wanted vindication from God. Job didn't just seek God to verbally abuse him. He genuinely wanted to connect and to hear from God. And what I'm going to add to what Cheryl says is that this is what little children want. They want to be with. They don't necessarily need to understand everything, but they want to be with their mother. They want to be with the father if the mother and father are secure attachment figures, if they feel safe. They don't need to understand everything, but they need relationship. They need connection. They need that co-regulation that we were just talking about. The Jesuit Father Robert R. Marsh published an article in 2004 called, Looking at God, Looking at You, And he was very frank and open about his spiritual life. I really respected this. He said, quote, We tend to be mind blind about God. We think that God knows simply what we know, sees simply what we see. And consequently, we rarely stop to ask God what God actually sees or knows or feels. We find it hard to let God enter our prayer as a real living person. Instead, we misuse the name God to denote a projection of what we think and feel. Those are those God images I was telling you about. Those God images that I covered in episodes 23 to 29 of this podcast. These are what we, who we feel God to be in our bones. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about the projection of what we think and feel. Father Marsh goes on, like an autistic child, I go about my prayer in a whole set of ways that try to minimize the chaos of my inner life by finding rituals and rules to tame my inner experience. I focus on my own needs and intentions, my own desires and insights, my own consolations and desolations. Most of my prayer consists of me thinking, or me feeling, me speaking, or me being silent. Some of the time I may pay lip service to my notional commitment to the belief that God enters my prayers as a person. I certainly spend quite a lot of inner time addressing something I call God, But in fact, this internal rehearsal of my experience tends to swing between two modes of speech. Either I talk to myself or I talk to my idea of God. Of course, it is not all talking. I operate in quieter ways too, through a kind of interior looking or just sitting. And sometimes I read or paint or write, but these activities only extend and modulate the pattern. They do not fundamentally change it. Okay, so there's a lot in here. Let's unpack it a little bit. Father Marsh is talking about how he's trying to manage his own internal system, how he's trying to regulate himself. He calls it taming his inner experience. And in that, he's focusing on his own needs, his own intentions, his own desires, his own insights, his consolations, his desolations, me, 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 me thinking, me feeling, me speaking, me being silent. And lip service to this idea of God, his God concept, who he professes God to be, but not really an invitation to a relationship with God as he is, with God's own thoughts, with God's own ideas, with God's own intentions, with God's own desires, right? Instead, this projection onto God A very small God, a God who sees things as Father Marsh sees things. I think this is far more common. This is not just unique to Father Marsh. I think this is the typical way that most Catholics pray. Not actually in relationship with the living God, but relating with some kind of shadow, some kind of projection of God. So, Father Marsh goes on. Thus, when my spiritual director asks me how God has responded to my inner talk, I tend not to know. I have not let God interrupt me. I don't just mean that I talk and talk and never listen. Listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. But even when I am trying to listen, even when I am sincerely asking for an answer to some deep question, I tend, in fact, to ask and then go straight on to mulling over several possible answers that God might have given already rather than asking God and waiting for an answer. I am, by nature, mind-blind where God is concerned. I do not really expect God to have a point of view about my inner experience, or about my outer experience, for that matter. On the odd occasions when I get beyond this blindness, I still approach God's point of view abstractly. I wonder what kind of thing God ought to see or feel or believe, rather than trying to discover what God is actually seeing, feeling, and believing. I am concerned with what God would say, rather than with what God does say. And even when I expect more, even when my heart has been open to the possibility that God might appear in my prayer as a real person with real feelings, desires, and needs, even then, all the rituals of my inner autism are so strong that following through is a struggle. Okay, so clear. He's struggling to relate with God as he is. It reminds me of St. Paul. We see as through a glass darkly, right? We're caught up in our own inner psychological worlds. A lot of this is happening on the natural level. Father Marsh says, spiritual autism is a pathology of our times. We do not allow God to be a living presence a real subject in our lives because we have been trained by our culture to believe that God cannot or at least does not behave that way. We have such small expectations of relating with God. It goes back to if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. We are relating with how we construe God to be in our bones how we imagine God to be based off of our experience. So, we need to be open to new understandings, to trust God for what we are not able to understand. That is the sixth step in this wrestle with God track. And the seventh is to forgive God, to let go of the anger. And forgive when they write this, is always in quotation marks, I'm not really sure about this whole forgiving God thing. I, that really, I, I really have difficulty resonating with it because it's so strong in my formation that God can do no wrong. In fact, God loves us perfectly. But I understand what they're trying to get at here. If, if there is a strong sense that God has felt like he's wronged you, there can be some way of connecting with him by, quote, forgiving him, end quote. I, I just... I don't know. I just really struggle with that. I have a hard time accepting that. So that doesn't seem particularly helpful to me, but I'm going to offer it as something that Novotny and Peterson have said. Theologically, of course, it's inaccurate to forgive God because God can never wrong us. But there it is. I just want you to know that that is out there as well. Okay, so that is the wrestle with God trek. Step one, acknowledge the difficulties of the situation. Step two, dealing with the feeling that God has failed me and the feeling of blaming God. Three, feeling anger, disappointment, and frustration with God. Fourth, identifying areas in which you feel God has failed you. Fifth, internally committing to the relationship and risk bringing your feelings to God. Sixth, being open to new understandings and trusting God for what you are not able to understand. And seventh, quote, forgiving God, end quote, letting go of the anger. That is the Wrestling with God track. So we've covered three of the four tracks so far. The first one is the Trust in God track. The second is the Cover Up track. The third is the Wrestling with God track. And that brings us to the fourth, which is the Long Distance Disconnect track. So the description of this track by Novotny and Peterson goes like this, quote, these people are being honest about their gripes and letting their feelings out. And so far, so good. But then there's a fork in the road. Long distance disconnecting people let their anger drive them away. Over the next months and years, they find themselves distancing themselves from God. Eventually, they may disconnect from him entirely, wanting nothing to do with the God they once trusted. Right, so there's this drifting away from God, little by little. There may not be any outright repudiation, no grand gesture, no list of grievances nailed to the parish door or something like that. Drifting away from God, little by little. Novotny and Peterson go on to say, quote, Granted, it's not easy to wrestle with God. Many people learn to avoid conflict with other people, and so they have few tools to work through conflict with God. It's easier for them to walk away, and so rather than listening for any responses God might have to their charges, they drop their bombs and run. They could deepen their relationship with God through a heated dialogue, but instead they reject that relationship. They wallow in their pain. One thing I want to say is that this rejection of the relationship with God need not be active. It could be passive. It could be by simply refusing to engage with God in any significant way, in any relational way anymore. It's not just anger that leads people to drift away from God. It's also the fear associated with the anger, the fear of being smited by God, right? The thunderbolts that kind of thing. And these folks, they remind me of Pilate, Pontius Pilate, in this one particular way in confronting God. In John 18, 38, Pilate asked Jesus a question. He asked Jesus, what is truth? But then he didn't stick around to hear the answer, right? He cut and run at that point. He moved away. Novotny and Peterson said that the long distance disconnect track begin quote, often starts with emotional distancing. Such people might continue to go through the motions, attending services, and even doing religious work, but the heart isn't in it. They stop praying except by rote. They no longer sense God's guidance in the Bible. The next step is physical distancing, usually a rejection of one's religious affiliations. A person stops going to church or quits a charitable commitment. Ultimately, there might be the final disconnection of denying God's existence. This can take the form of functional atheism in which a person gives mental assent to God, then acts as if God doesn't exist. Once again, the road to healing goes backward. Retrace the steps away from God and get back to the point of expressing anger to God. Okay, so there's a progression here. First, the emotional distancing, then the physical distancing. Emotional distancing... Prayer takes a hit. Catholics, diminishing Lectio Divina, diminishing spiritual reading, diminishing their private spiritual practices. No one notices immediately. Perhaps even the distancing man doesn't even realize himself how he is paring back his private devotions, his prayers, his connection to God. And then the physical distancing, right? No more confession or confessions become less and less frequent. No more mass right? They slide into this functional atheism. So that's the basic description. And the track has seven steps in it. Acknowledge the difficulties of the situation. God has failed me, right? That idea of God failing me and blaming God, feeling the anger, disappointment, and frustration with God. And then the assumption that one must not be angry with God, the repressing of anger, the distancing emotionally, the distancing physically, and then the disconnect. There is no God. So the first three steps of this track, the long distance disconnect track, are exactly the same first three steps as the wrestle with God track. Those first three steps are acknowledging the difficulties of the situation, feeling like God has failed me and blaming God, Third, feeling the anger, disappointment, and frustration with God. It has the exact same starting trajectory. So we've already covered those. I'm not going to go over them again, but this is where the divergence happens in step four. Step four is I mustn't be angry with God, repressing the anger. Here you have the avoidance kicking in. Here you have the withdrawing from God and this coolness toward God coming in because of distrust. And this can happen really slowly. Often it does very gradually so that a person doesn't even realize that it's happening. Like the frog in the pot of water that's gradually being warmed up. And then the next step, distancing emotionally. Prayer becomes more rote, less relational, less conversational, less personal Less of you is involved in your prayer. It's, it's maybe only involving a fraction of you now when it involved more of you in the past. The distractions in prayer tend to go way up in this in this phase. There's less and less opportunity for God to show you who he really is. There's less of an opportunity for God to show you who he really is. And what drives this again is those distorted God images. Episodes 23 to 29 of this podcast are all about problematic God images. These idols, right? And this goes back to what Father Marsh was telling us. It's not God as he actually is. It's God as we project him to be. How we've created this idol, this God that's so limited, so small, so narrow because of our limited imagination, because of our limited experience, because of the the finiteness of our humanity, because of the lack of experience of who God really is, because we don't remember or because we never knew. That's a form of idolatry, to interact with a God like that. Because that's not who God really is. We're not allowing God to be who he really is when we're distancing emotionally. And then it gets worse because we start distancing physically, right? We start cutting ourselves off from the sacraments, from confession, from the Eucharist, no longer going to Sunday Mass. And that can start with sort of semi-legitimate excuses, right? I'm not feeling 100% today. I don't feel really well. I I probably have this dispensation because I'm not feeling well, or I'm traveling, the weather's looking bad. I'll go later. There's a Sunday night Mass. I'll go to that Mass, but then you don't get around to it. You know, and then that can harden into this total disconnect, this idea that there is no God. Maybe you become spiritual, but not religious. You know, that whole spiritual, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious kind of thing. So that's the long distance disconnect track. Seven steps. The first three are the same as in the wrestle with God track, acknowledging the difficulties of the situation, feeling like God has failed, blaming God, feeling anger, disappointment, and frustration with God, but then, I mustn't be angry with God. All that repressed anger, distancing emotionally, distancing physically, the disconnect. There is no God. That's the seventh. So, we've covered the four tracks now. The trust in God track, which is a very good track. The cover-up track, where you know we're, we're pretending. The wrestle with God track, where we engage. And the long-distance disconnect track, where we disengage. I want to talk about some a few extra points on solutions here, right? First of all, I want to talk about understanding your anger at God. This becomes so much easier if we understand something about our anger at God. We won't always understand our anger at God, but I often believe that there is so much more we can understand than what we do, and it's because we don't really seek to understand. And again, this whole series on anger that I'm offering you in this podcast, the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, So episode 103 is a conceptual episode. It's about anger in general. Episode 105 is about anger at God in particular. We got into the the whys and wherefores about that. Then the experiential exercises. Episode 104 is about working with your anger in general. And episode 106 was about anger at God in particular. And I want to offer you an image. An image about how much God accepts our anger at him. And I want you to imagine a little child that you know could be a son or daughter, could be a niece or nephew, but somebody that you know at the age of two, abducted, kidnapped, kidnapped and taken away, and raised for the next 10 years, raised for the next 10 years by the abductors. And in the process of those 10 years, those abductors told the little child that his parents didn't love him. His father didn't care. That's why they didn't come look for him. That's why he was never found. And then let's say that after 10 years of this, of this child being alienated from his parents, that law enforcement finds him able to you know match him up with his parents and there's a homecoming. Would good parents of this now 12-year-old child understand if this child was angry at them, if this child was confused, if this child had strange ideas about his parents' love for him? Would they understand that? Would they tolerate that? These loving parents, would they be okay with that? Or would they get all upset if the 12-year-old was angry at them? I'm going to say this is the exact same situation that we find ourselves in. We've been hijacked by evil, by the evil of original sin, the sins of others, our own personal sins. We've been hijacked by that. We do not know who God is at an experiential level, in our bones, in the same way that Adam and Eve did before the fall. God understands how warped our impressions of him are. We've been hijacked, we've been kidnapped, we've been abducted, we've been raised in an environment where we're alienated from God. Let's go back to what Father Marsh said the Jesuit. He said, Spiritual autism is a pathology of our times. We do not allow God to be a living presence, a real subject in our lives, because we have been trained by our culture to believe that God cannot, or at least does not, behave that way, that he doesn't engage with us, that he doesn't love us. Oh, we talk about it. We've got all sorts of catechesis about it, all sorts of apologetics about it. But as a psychologist, I want that, in the bones. I want that through every fiber of my being, not just rattling around in my cranium, up in my head, in the intellectual part. We don't have that. God understands how disadvantaged we are. And the truth is that if we seek, we will find, but we look too little. We ask for too little faith. We seek too little of experiences we don't taste and we don't see because of fear, because of anger, because of our misunderstandings, because we, we slide along with our default assumptions that are so warped because of our fallen human condition. The other thing is we don't want to just intervene at the level of the anger. We want to get to the root causes of the anger Anger at God is a symptom. It's a symptom of a poor God image. Again, I can't stress enough episodes 23 to 29 about poor God images, really important. The other thing is unmet integrity needs and unmet attachment needs. I get into that in episode 62 of this podcast. So some extra tips here about working through. First of all, you do not have to do this with anything like perfection, It's going to be messy. If you get involved in a real relationship with God, it's going to be messy. It's going to be the messiest thing you've ever done. It really is. I'm just going to tell you straight out. It's going to be the messiest thing you've ever done if you really engage with God. We want to do this in a way where we are sensitive to safety and protection. We want to stay in our window of tolerance. It's okay to move slowly with this but we need to move consistently. We need to move regularly, right? We want to have a sustainable, slow pace. This is one of those things where the turtle wins the race. Poco a poco. Again, we want to taste and see. We want to have the experience of God. And we also want to remember our consolations. We want to go back in our memory to the good times with God. That helps so much. Another thing that didn't get mentioned in any of this literature that I reviewed on anger at God is that we can approach Jesus at different ages. Sometimes it's easier to be angry at Jesus when he's younger. Not when he's 33, but when he's 10. Maybe it's easier to express anger at him when he's 16. The other thing is that we can approach Mary and the saints and the angels with our anger at God rather than God himself. Can we bring to Mary our anger at her son? Can we bring to Mary anger at God the Father? Sometimes that's so much easier when a person's mother images are so much more positive than their father images. The able to go to Mary so much more because the mother image is not toxic, but the father image is really toxic. So it's easier to connect with Mary. It's easier to bring this stuff to her, to invite her into a relationship with you where she can help you. And again, the same thing holds with these Mary images. Let her be her. Not just your imagination of what Mary would say, not just putting words in her mouth, not just projecting out what you think she would do based on your Limited experience and your limited knowledge and your limited awareness and your limited understanding, but on who she actually is as a mother who loves you, letting her actually be her in your life. And the same thing can be true for other saints. I particularly like Saints Joachim and Ian, these are the grandparents of Jesus. If you've got positive associations to grandparents, Saints Joachim and can be saints that you can connect with. Your guardian angel, other saints, your patron saint, other ones that could help you. Okay. Where are we going from here? Where are we going from here? Well, our next episode is going to be recorded live. This is episode 108. It's a live experience of the eight. Interior Integration for Catholics podcast. We will be recording it on Wednesday, March 15th, 2023 from 7 o'clock PM to 8 o'clock PM Eastern time. That's Wednesday, March 15th, 2023, 7 o'clock PM to 8 o'clock PM Eastern time. We've gotten a link out and one of our Wednesday email reflections. We're going to put it up on the landing page for this podcast at soulsandhearts.com backslash IIC. Sign up. Go ahead and get those weekly email reflections it'll be there and uh, it's a, a little section about the podcast on the bottom. Go to the to the landing page soulsandhearts.com/iic. It's free but you do have to register. It's really great to do these together. It's been just a wonderful experience to be with Souls and Hearts members to be with the listeners of this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast to be together in that. Um, then in 109, in episode 109, which is going to come out in April, we're going to be looking at working with anger at God in an entirely different way. I don't think anything is out there about this particular way of working with anger at God because I'm going to bring in internal family systems approaches, parts approaches to working with anger that I think can be so helpful. They've been so helpful to me, they've been so helpful to my clients, they've been so helpful to members of the Resilient Catholics community. So I want you to make sure that you catch that one as well. That'll come out in the first Monday of April. And the Resilient Catholics community, this is all about developing a deep, intimate, personal relationship with God our Father and Mary our Mother, our spiritual parents as they are as they actually are, getting over our limited vision of them, getting over our limited imagination of them, reducing the the noise inside, getting over the psychological inhibitions and the psychological hurdles, the human formation obstacles, to being able to relate with them as they are so that we can claim our identity as their beloved daughters and sons. Beloved daughters and sons of God the Father and Mary our Mother. That identity of beloved son or daughter of God is freely given, but we need to embrace it. We need to get beyond the superficial ways of relating that we have with them. How do we do that in the RCC? How do we do that in the Resilient Catholics community? We do that by dealing with the natural level issues we have in relationships, the human formation issues we have that have spiritual consequences because grace perfects nature. It needs nature to work on. So many spiritual problems have their roots in the natural realm in human formation. So if these kinds of themes are interesting to you, if this podcast is interesting to you, check out the Resilient Catholics Community. Go to soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC or or just go to a search engine and type in Resilient Catholics Community. You'll find it. It's really easy to get to. We want you to get to know your parts. We want you to get to love your parts so that you can better love God wholeheartedly with all your parts, with all your being, and better love your neighbor as yourself. So you have an opportunity to meet me in person. Come to the Catholic Psychotherapy Association Annual Conference in San Diego, California from April 20th to 22nd, 2023. I'm going to be presenting there. lead navigator of the interior therapist community, Jody Garneau, and I are presenting a three-hour workshop called The Integrated Catholic Therapist, A Compassionate Approach to Sexual Concerns Using IFS on Friday, April 21st, 2023. There's also a streaming option if you can't attend in person, and you can certainly pick that up as well. You don't have to be a therapist or counselor to register. More details, registration information are on the Catholic Psychotherapy Association website at catholicpsychotherapy.org or... Just Google Catholic Psychotherapy Association Conference. You'll find that they're getting their registration materials up right now. I know you can register. They're getting the schedule up in the next few days. I just spoke with Matt Molesky last week. He's the executive director of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. Really excited to be connecting with them and to be working with them. Did you know that we have a resources page at Souls and Hearts? It's at soulsandhearts.com backslash T-O-C. Capital T, capital O, capital C. Stands for Table of Contents. soulsandhearts.com backslash T-O-C. That is a place where we alphabetize by topic all of the resources that we have. So, tremendous amount of resources there if you would like to learn about a particular topic. We have those weekly reflections I told you about. I send them out. We're in this series on spiritual bypassing. They're excellent. soulsandhearts.com backslash blog. But the better thing is to get on the mailing list. If you're not on the mailing list, go to soulsandhearts.com and then just click on the blue box that says, get the weekly reflection from Dr. Peter, put in your email address. We'll send it out to you every Wednesday. And finally, you can reach out to me, All right? I have conversation hours every Tuesday and Thursday from 4.30 PM to 5.30 PM Eastern time. I sit by my cell phone, 317-567-9594, and I take calls, private calls, from listeners to the podcast and from readers of my weekly reflections, and we talk about what's in those episodes, what's in those reflections. Now, that's not therapy. I can't do therapy with you. If you need therapy, we have a free 90-minute online video course called A Catholic's Guide to Choosing a Therapist and that's on the Souls and Hearts website, or you can just Google it. You'll find it, A Catholic's Guide to Choosing a Therapist. And you can also email me at at crisisatsoulsandhearts.com. That's my email address, crisisatsoulsandhearts.com. And with that, we will bring it to a close for today. Thank you for being with me. Please, please, and this is the most important thing, keep me in your prayers. Keep this podcast in your prayers. Keep Souls and Hearts in your prayers. Are all of our endeavors at Souls and Hearts are fueled by prayer. It's the absolute most important thing. I am trying to relate with God as he is to know what he wants from Souls and Hearts. So important to have the support of all of your prayers. So please pray for me. I pray for you. And I thank you for your prayers. And with that, we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.